Hello and welcome to A Broad View, the current affairs news podcast that takes the week's top news story and adds an international twist. Each episode will be joined by a surprise guest to give us their country's unique perspective on the UK's news. I'm your presenter, Charlotte Scar, and this week we are joined by a guest from across the pond, Taryn Siegel. Hello Taryn and welcome to A Broad View. Hello, thanks for having me. Can you give a brief explanation of yourself? Well, I am American, as you can probably tell. I'm from New York. But I actually haven't lived in New York since I was in high school. So I've also lived in Massachusetts, which, if you don't know, is kind of like north of New York. And I lived for two years in Wisconsin, which is in the middle of the country. And then for the last five years, I lived in Japan. And now I live in London. As a kind of starting question, can you tell us what the media landscape in the U.S. is like? Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. It's very different from what you see in the U.K. in some ways. It's kind of an talk to death in some sense in our course about the objectivity and balance in the UK that you don't necessarily get in the US. I mean, I would take issue with the sort of extremity that it's it's discussed. I don't think that it's quite as unbalanced as it's maybe described from a UK perspective. But it's true that broadcasters don't have an Ofcom type regulator that makes sure that they're always being balanced. So you have some very extreme unbalanced reporting. So um, MSNBC, which I think most UK people don't know, is uh, my example of the most liberal, just unjustifiably left-wing, not super objective version of that on the left side. And then um, obviously Fox News is you know, questionably not even news at this point because it's reporting things that are not factually accurate. It always has a bent and an agenda. And I know I sound really like a pundit and just like, I don't know, I sound a little bit biased myself when I talk about it like that. But I think it's pretty well established that Fox News is not a legitimate news organization anymore. So yes, you have those extremes. And then, um, and I would say that CNN is not quite as extreme, though obviously it has a liberal bent, but I think it's actually fairly balanced. Anderson Cooper is one of the best reporters in the US. And then the newspapers, similarly to the UK, have a little bit of their own leanings, hopefully not too extreme either, but uh, the New York Times typically is a little bit more liberally leaning, but it's also just like phenomenally good reporting. So they try to stay objective. It's a difficult time to report on, honestly. Like it's a very difficult present to report on objectively. And I think, honestly, some outlets fall into a trap in their quest for objectivity right now. And reporting this president is obviously so difficult. And reporting not even just him, but also his Republican colleagues can be so challenging that sometimes in their quest for objectivity, I see some papers go to the extreme of trying to find examples of misconduct where there maybe isn't an analogous case on the other side. So they'll look for something the Democrats have done, look for something the Republicans done, and kind of try to create a parallel when there isn't really a good parallel. It's not really comparable what they're trying to, what they are accusing maybe rightfully the Democrats of. Like they're creating an analogy between them where there isn't really one, in my opinion. For the UK, we obviously have Ofcom that regulates all broadcasting outlets and impartiality has to be enforced. Um, In the US, is there, could you say that each station directly supports the Democrats or the Republicans? Is that, is it quite an obvious leaning? I would say most, most outlets would probably hesitate to declare themselves like that because they still want to be seen as reporting the facts. So CNN, I don't think would ever say, yeah, we're for the Democrats because they 
think of themselves as real reporters and they know it's not the reporter's job to have an opinion in that sense. Fox News, frankly, they might also say the same. They might try to argue, we're just reporting facts. We're not specifically here to support the Republicans. That's very difficult to argue for Fox News in some cases. Like, I don't know if you know Sean Hannity, one of the most famous Fox News presenters. He actually came on stage during a Trump rally and sort of through his support for Trump there at the rally. So at that point, it's very hard to say that he's not there supporting the Republican agenda, right? But yeah, I would say that even though as the viewer, you can probably get a sense of their loyalties or their leanings, maybe is a better word. I don't think they would come out and say this is, especially, you know, places like CNN, which really think of themselves as reputable news outlets. They wouldn't say, like, we support the Democrats. They would just say we're reporting the facts accurately. So as a as training journalist, it almost puts you in a very compromising position when you are looking where you want to work in the future. Do you have, I mean, personally, is there certain media outlets that you would say, I, I'm going to work for those because they are aligned with my political leanings? Or, you know, is there, is it slightly different? Do you think, well, you know, it's just good to get a job anywhere and learn the skills? Yeah, it's a good question. I've thought about that. Um, I think for the immediate future, I want to work in the UK kind of for that reason, because I feel like I have this precious objectivity in the UK that I wouldn't have in the US. But eventually, I'll want to work in the US. And I mean, when I think about what it would be like to work at Fox News, honestly, I, even maybe like, and maybe this is naive, I don't know, but I think a decade ago, I wouldn't have scoffed at the idea of working at Fox News, even if certain presenters have their own leanings and that comes across in their reporting. As long as, they're, as long as they're trying to be a reputable news outlet and you have some talent that's really devoted to that cause, I feel like any outlet would be fine. And there are some presenters on Fox News that really aren't quite as biased as Sean Hannity or Laura Graham or uh, Laura Ingram. But nowadays, I mean, it would be really challenging. Like just looking at their front page when something really critical is happening in the impeachment inquiry or whatever else that's sort of scandals that the president's involved in. Their front page is intentionally not covering that stuff. You know, it's intentionally ignoring the real critical issues happening today. And instead, there's, you know, their their biggest story is about Hillary Clinton and her fucking emails. It's my lots of curse on this. <laughs> yeah, you can. Okay. <laughs> um, uh, but it's but it's lunacy. Like they're 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 talking about things that are years old that have no relevancy to the coverage for today. And they're pivoting to that coverage because they want to avoid talking about the scandals that Trump is involved in. And that's just such irresponsible reporting. And maybe they, I don't think they did it quite as like blatantly maybe 10 years ago, even if they had a little bit of a, a red leaning. So I could have worked there at that point, but at least right now it seems really, it would be really tough. I think it's really difficult as a young journalist to actually keep, impartiality and integrity. In the UK, I'd say the only real comparison we could draw would be Russia Today, which mm. has slightly questionable ties with Russia and the, the, the stories it selects do have quite an obvious lean. But again, I've been told by lecturers on this course that, you know, if you can get experience there, if you can get that practical, you know, studio newsroom experience, then go and do it. Yeah. Whereas that's compromising all of my values, but you don't really... You know, when you're young and going out there and you're trying to find a job, don't really have that ability to be selective and picky. Yeah. but there's And there's also the other side of that where it might be a really good educational opportunity to go towards an, in, to an organization you don't agree with. And the things and the practices that they're involved in you think are reprehensible. It might be really interesting and a good learning experience to become 
you know, involve yourself in it and infiltrate it and see what is going on behind the scenes, what are the decisions being made, and to kind of, yeah, just get a behind-the-scenes look for all that. And I honestly thought about that as early as, I don't know, half a year ago about Fox News. I'm like, maybe it would be a really fascinating experience to be on the inside and actually see how the decisions are processed and, and what they take into account all these things. And then, you know, checking their front page regularly, I just realized... I don't think I could do that. I don't think I could, even if it was interesting on one level to see their practices in person, how could I live with myself working for an organization that doesn't cover the news accurately, you know, doesn't cover it fairly? I think it would be really interesting to see how much is editorialized and actually who does call those shots. Yeah. As a young reporter, I just don't know. I mean, honestly, it. it might be interesting if I could just pull it up right now. Like, what is on the front page of Fox News at this very moment. I feel like I even have their app unless I got so angry that I deleted it at some point. I'm very interested to see that. Yeah, I mean, it's illuminating. It's always not what you expect. I mean, let me just take a guess beforehand about what could be a a important story, right? So recently, um, the EPA is going to not use as much science (laughs) towards uh, coming up with these regulations. So it's alarming. Um, What else? There's a... A couple of diplomats that are coming to do public testimony for the impeachment this week, including Bill Taylor. Oh, okay, here. Front page of of Fox News. It's a picture of Trump with the White House behind him is their picture. And then it says battle plan. And the headline reads GOP, that means the Republican Party, GOP memo reveals strategy talking points to combat Dems impeachment maneuver. And then, so you think about that and you're like, okay, that could be... It could be objective. It's just they've gotten their hands on the memo from the Republican Party about what the strategy will be. That's relevant, right? Um, but then the bullet points other under it say, uh, not only is impeachment dead on arrival, there's a risk that the Senate doesn't even take it up, Whitaker says. You know, like, it's just ridiculous. And then let's see, the next one is Giuliani Associate told Ukrainians to investigate Biden's, lawyer says. So that's that's what their their talking points for impeachment are, is number one, just don't even think about it because it's dead on arrival. Number two, actually, we should be investigating the Bidens. That's their spin on the impeachment inquiry, which is, you know, it's an important news story to cover in all of its facets. Like the president is being impeached. What is he accused of? What is his wrongdoing? Is there any legitimacy to it? Instead, they're just completely whitewashing it. They're saying, well, don't even bother looking into those points. Let's not even do that. Let's not even do the investigation. It's just wrong. And let's not even question why or why not. And now let's pivot to actually it's the Bidens that are at fault. I mean, it's just so irresponsible. So that's that's what they're covering. That's how they're covering the impeachment inquiry. And it's just irresponsible journalism. I, I mean, I'm, I'm a bit shocked by that, to be honest. Oh, it's always like that. Yeah. In terms of how many people are watching and reading uh, Fox News? I know. That's the scary thing. It's massively popular. In fact, it's it's popular to the extent that there's a there's great swaths of the country that only watch Fox News. Because remember, it's a cable news network that's on all the time. Uh, you can always tune in. And there's online publications as well. Like, it's always accessible. And s- millions of Americans not only watch it, but watch it exclusively. They don't watch anything else because they say Fox is the only place that the president gets a fair coverage. So in terms of the impeachment, like leading on from that, what, how is it being perceived in the U.S.? Because from the U.K., I mean, when it happened, from the initial thoughts, we were thinking this is big. This is going to be something big. You know, Trump could be impeached. It could be, we could go to the Democrats. And it was, I was, you know, not overjoyed. I'm an impartial journalist. (laughs) But I was thinking, this is a big thing. Um, But it just seems, in the UK media, it's just kind of calmed down. And it almost seems like he is just 
completely um, immovable. He's just, there's nothing that can take him off his, um, what's the word? Take his pedestal. His pedestal. He's just yeah. there. What's like, for the, I don't know, in the US, what are your, what's happening? Like, what do you think about what's going on? Yeah, I've also felt like the momentum has kind of slowed a bit lately for whatever reason. And it's just, I don't know, to be honest, I'm not sure why, because they did vote, was it last week? I mean, the weeks move so, like the news cycles move so quickly now, it's like hard to even mm. keep them straight. But I think it was last Thursday that the House officially voted to open the impeachment inquiry. So you thought, like, that would be big news. And somehow it wasn't, you know, sometimes, somehow I feel like it wasn't covered with the same sort of fanfare as the original opening of the inquiry was. Um, and now from these closed-door hearings, we're now into the public testimony phase. But I think the Republicans have done a pretty good job of making the narrative that these closed-door hearings were totally illegitimate. There was something almost criminal about hiding this testimony from the public eye and only having pieces of it that were favorable to the Democrats leaked to the media, which, you know, they have somewhat of a point in the sense that I don't know why only pieces of it are getting leaked and I don't know. Um, but yeah, so now that it's entered the public phase, I mean, we'll see. Like maybe this week, as people watch these testimonies, it'll make an impact. But I think they did a pretty good job of kind of muddying the waters. And they've said that even though now they've opened it up, taken a formal vote on the inquiry and all this stuff, there's no coming back from the way that it started. You know, it started in this illegitimate fashion. You can't fix that now by just opening it up so late in the day. And yeah, I think they've done an effective job of really sticking to that message. And I, I think the only thing at this point that would really break through would be defections from the Republicans. And we're not seeing any of that, at least this point. And even though some of the testimony has been really damaging, some of it has also been a little bit difficult because we're not as helpful as it could have been. Like frickin' the ambassador to the EU who inexplicably got caught up in all this nonsense, Gordon something, uh, he just changed his testimony, you know, after testi testifying for hours that there was no critical pro quo and, you know, like all now all of America yeah. knows what that freaking that piece of Latin means. But um, after testifying that there was nothing like that and the president specifically said there was no quid pro quo, now he's changed his mind and he, in like a three-page insertion. He said, oh, no, sorry, I forgot. Now that I heard everyone else's testimony, <laughs> I remembered that actually, not only did I know that there was this exchange where only aid would be released if they investigated the Bidens, like, not only did I know that, but I was the one that actually informed the Ukrainians that that was the deal. <laughs> I was like, how the fuck did you forget that that, that you were, not only did you know that happened, but you were the person responsible for conveying the message to the Ukrainians. And people pressed me like, where is this coming from? How did you forget this? He's like, oh, you know, I just, it fresh into my memory when I heard the other witnesses. It's like, well, you've lost all credibility now. I mean, the whole thing is just almost unbelievable. I feel that with Trump, uh, the interesting point you made about the next big move would be if Republicans, you know, went over to the other side. Because I feel like from from early on, impeachment have, has been on the cards. As soon as he... As soon as he was elected as president, people were thinking, well, he's got to be impeached. He's got to be impeached. Something's yeah. got to come up. And that's, you know, now a few years ago. And we've, I don't know, climaxed at this point, And it's still just not a shock. Nothing, yeah. nothing is a shock anymore. I know. It really comes down to this really horrible cycle that continues in perpetuity between Fox News, the Republican base, Republicans, and Trump, 
right? It's like Trump influences Fox News and they have a very close relationship. As a result, Fox News pretty much, with some exceptions, but pretty much exclusively publishes things favorable to Trump. And as we saw, they spin this impeachment inquiry in a way that makes it as favorable to him as possible and as damning to the Democrats as possible. And so Republican voters who are watching that exclusively pick that up as the truth, as the only way to view the impeachment inquiry. So most of those voters believe that it's completely illegitimate. And that informs the Republicans in Congress who are reliant on those Trump supporters to stay in office, which means they stick with Trump, which means Trump then is never held accountable. So it just keeps going round and round and round and round. And it's hard to imagine what would break that cycle. So this leads us on to our news story of the week, which <laughs> it's not this week and it's not last week, but it is the week before. So Mr. Trump himself had a phone in, phone in, <laughs> yeah. phone out, phone in, not sure which one, conversation with Nigel Farage on LBC radio station, which in itself is a really big deal to have the US president phoning into a... UK London-based radio station to speak with Nigel Farage, who is the leader <laughs> of the Brexit Party. Yeah. Since then, there has been quite a few developments. Can you tell us, you know, what was what was the what was the media reaction to that in the US? Was it a big thing? Because in the UK, you know, all papers okay, it wasn't the front page, but all papers slipped it in. You know, a few pages. It's like this was quite a substantial phone conversation to have. Well, actually, to be honest, it wasn't covered with nearly the same. It didn't have the nearly the same coverage as in the U.S. as I think it did in the U.K. for a couple reasons. One, that just, you know, it was about the the politics and the election in the U.K., which isn't as interesting to the U.S. audience, unfortunately. But also, honestly, I think a big reason it wasn't covered as ferociously in the U.S. is because he kind of does that shit all the time. Like, he calls yeah. into Fox News all the time. I mean, he's just like, you, you turn it on and there's a good chance at, once a week he's going to be, it'll be like, President Trump on the phone and he's just talking to the to the Fox News host. So he does that so frequently that I don't think it really made splashes in the US. There were a couple articles about it, but it was more that was one piece within a bigger story about how Trump seems to be inserting himself into the UK election, which was more interesting. Yeah, I feel like I mean the subjects Trump decided to um talk about was the EU deal, the general election, U US UK trade relationship deal post-Brexit and the Conservative Party <laughs> slash Brexit Party collaboration. I mean, my my highlight from the whole thing was when he said to um, Mr. Farage, I'd like to see you and Boris get together because you really have some numbers, which <laughs> implies that if they came together, they would win a general election. So it's, I mean, it is insane that the US president is making such a a statement about the British general election. It is almost unheard of because it's I mean, what authority does he have in this situation? Yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, it's so blatant. He's just throwing his support behind Boris Johnson and as blatantly as possible saying, like, he's my guy and this is how I think he could win. Maybe you guys should team up and that would be that would be better insurance that he could be successful. But I think what was really interesting in that interference, the way it was covered in the U.S. versus the U.K., I was watching the coverage on BBC Breakfast and, um, you know, of course, they need to be really balanced and objective. And so I don't know if it was because they're thinking about the Ofcom regulators as, as they do this. But uh, the host was speaking with um, someone from Labor Party. Uh, I don't know, someone in the shadow cabinet, but I don't know. Who, I can't remember who exactly. Not Jeremy Corbyn, mm -hmm. but, you know, some some leader in the, in, in the Labor Party. <laughs> and sh she was pressing him and saying uh, she's really pointing to the line where he says how Jeremy Corbyn. Corbyn would be so bad for the country. Yeah. 
And she really pushes him. But her point was, isn't that a problem that, you know, regardless of your attitude towards Donald Trump, he is the president of the U.S. He is a very powerful person. Isn't it an issue that he does not like Jeremy Corbyn? Wouldn't that create issues if Jeremy Corbyn became prime minister? Isn't that something we need to address, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, and that line of questioning, that angle was absolutely ignored in the U.S. The idea that there could be any downside to Trump disliking you was not even considered. The, the coverage is entirely about how his um, support for Johnson is bad for Johnson, that any any sign of alliance between Trump and anyone, basically, is just it's taken for granted that it's going to hurt them with the U.K. Uh, constituency. I think that's a really good point, because to have, you know, a big trade part of the, U the U.S., their president actually not just commenting, but like imposing a judgment and saying, making a statement, I'm not sure his words would be, oh, yeah, Jeremy Corbyn would be bad for your country. He'd be so bad. He'd take you on such a bad way. I mean, really <laughs> eloquent the words, words there. <laughs> but I mean, to say that about the leader of the opposition, we're in a general election. We're not really sure what's going to happen. It's not going to be an obvious win victory on any part. Um, and to make that statement, I, I was shocked that, I mean, I wasn't shocked because it was <laughs> Donald Trump. But if it had been Barack Obama, you know, I, that would just be completely unacceptable. Uh, that would be his legacy, that yeah. one comment. Yeah. That one comment and actually his favorite, um, Donald Trump's favoritism of Mr. Farage itself. I mean, I, th I think they're allegedly friends, which... <laughs> I could see that. Uh, yeah, I could really see that. <laughs> but even getting him to call in to your, uh, to your radio show, I think it's quite a... I mean, it's an interesting period, and I don't know if D Donald Trump is actually going to have any impact from that phone conversation, or if it did have any benefit. Yeah. I mean, it seems like from the U.S.'s assumption is that the benefit is entirely, or at least almost entirely, reaped by Corbyn in that phone call. That was their their take on it. The fact that Trump allies himself to Johnson, allies himself to Farage, is supporting the conservative agenda, is that such he's such a tainted person to anyone in the UK that that automatically just hurts them with their voters. And the fact that he's criticizing Corbyn, the fact that he's he's throwing his support behind the conservative party, that's useful and helpful to Corbyn and no one else. That was their takeaway from that call in. That's, I mean, it's not probably the best reputation to have. <laughs> um, but since then, we have had a development where maybe Nigel Farage has listened to Donald Trump's uh, opinion. <laughs> yeah, and right. I don't know if he has. Um, so he has decided to not field candidates in 317 seats where uh, the Conservative Party won in the last general election um, in the hope that the leave vote will not be divided. So maybe... Maybe he took Donald Trump's advice, and that's. I'm, I'm unsure yeah. if that's actually going to be beneficial in the future. But, wow. I know. It seems like Farage took it upon himself, from what I can see, to align himself to Johnson, because, you know, he approached Johnson, of course, and tried to make some sort of like coalition, and Johnson refused him. But then, yeah, it's just suddenly he seemed to, to 180 and say, well, then I guess I'll just be less ferocious in my attempt to get mm. seats in order to help you. Uh, actually, going from that point, in the British press, there was an article, an opinion op, oh no, opinion op, an op-ed by mm. Sean O'Grady in The Independent, and he used this phone call as a completely scathing review of Nigel, Nigel Farage, mm. saying that, he, I think he referred to it as a plea for help, and that, in fact, because no deal is mom momentarily off the table, you know, Nigel Farage is in such a desperate situation, he needed that press from a mm. conversation with Donald Trump to 
kind of put his name back. Mm, make him relevant again. Yeah, make him relevant again. So maybe that's linking to what he's just done with not fielding these candidates in these seats. He's realising that he's just actually on the back foot. He is now in a more vulnerable situation. Yeah. Um, going back to the US, what, I, what I'd like to know is, you said Fox News is a major. There's so many people who watch it or listen to it or read it. Is that is national media, is that the... Is that the priority? Is that what people go to? Yeah, I would say so. And even just in general, politics and the policies that matter to you just in the last, I don't know, 10 years or so, it's gone from being primarily local issues take precedent. And you can definitely win at the local level just by focusing on your own constituencies and your own state issues and things like that. That used to be the case. And now the national issues dominate no matter what. So even if you're in a state where you maybe have some sort of like you have state legislature that you traditionally really backed and they've done a lot of good for your community. Now it's a matter of what team are they on. So if they're a Democrat, even if you know, you've loved your Democratic governor for the last several terms, the fact that they're a Democrat in your very red Republican state, it makes it very hard for them to maintain your loyalty. So that's really changed in the last like, 10 or so years is that the national issues are dominating. So certainly the national media is where people are going to first and foremost. So from a British perspective and my maybe naive perspective, I look at Donald Trump's policies and I see there's a lot of things I do disagree with, mainly climate change or immigration. But I really can't see or I don't know what he's done economically to the U.S., and you know, he's, been, he's made a lot of claims about how the economy is in a better situation. But I, I really can't make a judgment because I don't know what the American economy is like. Could you shed some light on that? Yeah, so it's, yeah, so it, it's hard to say how much, I mean, so much of it is vibrato, right? He's, he wants to take claims and, and he wants to, um, yeah, take responsibility for whatever is positive. But he's not wrong in the fact that our economy is strong and it's been strong under him. But it's also... It seems as though there were some economic policies put in place under Obama that you could say kind of kicked in later on during Trump's presidency. So there's not so much of the policies that he himself has enacted. As far as the policies that he's been responsible for, well, obviously we have a trade war with China, which has been really hurtful to the U.S. economy in a lot of ways, and especially to farmers and things like that. Um, and then he, you know, quote unquote, renegotiated NAFTA, the North American um, Free Trade Agreement. But it's just kind of in some ways, I mean, there are some differences for sure. But in a lot of ways, it's the same agreement under a different name. Plus, it hasn't actually officially been enacted yet, I don't think. So it's hard to say that that would really has made any impact, I wouldn't, I wouldn't think. So then as far as potentially positive impacts, he did pass, you know, along with his Republican colleagues, a really big tax cut, I think it was a year into his presidency. And that has put money back in the pockets of a lot of wealthier Americans, which could be the reason or related to why the stock market has been quite strong. But again, it's, you know, you can't use the stock market as the main indicator for economic health in a country. You need to look at other factors, you know, are people are, is there, are their earnings increasing? What's their standard of living right now? Are they able to afford their basic needs? And there's a lot of grand issues that the stock market is sort of obscuring, you know, like the fact that people can't afford basic medications, the fact that a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck and they, they couldn't afford 
you know, a $400 surprise expense. Like I forgot the statistic, but a, a surprising number of Americans wouldn't be able to to recover from just an unexpected $400 expense. So as far as the majority of Americans, not the wealthiest Americans, it's a little more complicated, the strength of the economy and how well the economy is doing. But that being said, the stock market has been really strong. He's right about that and has been getting stronger. And it's been during his leadership that that's been happening. And some of it could very well be because of his tax cut and, um, I don't know, other maybe like softer policy issues that he's enacted. So the next presidential election is November 2020. Mm-hmm. Has Trump started his electoral campaign? It's funny. He started his campaign his first term of office. <laughs> he, like, he basically mm-hmm. has been running a re-election campaign since he got into the office. Officially, his first re-election campaign rally was, I want to say, like June or so. Yeah. So he's he's off and running. He's officially now, quote unquote, officially uh, campaigning. So, yeah, he's he's already doing that, which, you know, it's not. Like, it's, it's definitely atypical to be starting your re-election campaign and be buying the domain for your re-election campaign and buying your slogan and all this shit. Your first term of office, like, your first year of office, that's weird. But um, it's not unusual to, you know, the incumbent to be using their extra time a year out to already be campaigning. I mean, they have a huge advantage for that reason, and, and most incumbents will use it. So for the Democrats, there are, is it 17 candidates? At the God, moment? how many do we have right now? I don't think it's I don't think it's seventeen. I want to see. I think it's thirteen. That speaks for itself. I know, right? Honestly, who's been following this election? And off the top of your head, I mean, rightly so. You can only name eight and a half because I'll count the billionaire as half a person, (laughs) so they don't remember his name. (laughs) But I mean, when the conservative um, they had the leadership campaign, I think there was I can't remember. I think it was thirty, and then it dropped down. Yeah, it is. It's extremely difficult to follow that. Yeah, as a Democrat supporter, it's. It must be so challenging to actually figure out who you think is best for the job because you've got so many people. And how like, how does it work in the U.S.? Can everyone have the right to vote for the, the Democrat candidate? Yeah, it's weird. Um, I always thought that you had to... So when you, when you register to vote, you have, I guess, the option of registering with a particular party. Most people do. And it's not like the U.K. where you have to pay a membership fee or something like that. So it's pretty common that you'll choose one or the other when you register. Otherwise, you'll be independent. Or you can go for one of the other lesser-known parties, but most people don't do that. Um, And I always thought that that meant you have the right to vote in that party's primary. But when I was living in Japan, I uh, got an absentee ballot to vote in the primary uh, the last time around uh, when it was, you know, between, like, Bernie and Hillary. And on the ballot, you – of course, at that time, you had uh, two primaries at once, right, because Obama had finished both of his terms. So it's a bit unusual to today where – uh, right now, there's, you know, it doesn't seem like Trump will be primaried, meaning he'll be the one candidate mm. in the Republican race, and the Democrats alone will hold a primary race. Seems that way. Uh, anyway, um, so back then, it was an open field on both sides. And when I got my ballot, it said at the first, the first question is you choose which primary you will choose to vote in. So I selected Democrat and therefore filled everything in for the Democrats and chose my Democratic primary candidate. But it didn't seem like anything would have stopped me from simply choosing Republican and then voting in the Republican primary. However, I wouldn't have been able to vote in both. Okay. So if I wanted to get my voice heard in the Democratic primary, then I had to choose the Democratic primary. But it seems like, you know, there's a case where you could just try to sabotage. Not that your one vote would have much of an yeah. influence, but if you, like, you know, 
got but together you, with a bunch of other people. It seems like you could sabotage the other party's race by choosing to vote in their primary. And it, at least from the absentee ballot, it didn't look like there were any checks to make sure that I was registered as a Democrat. For the primary, when is the primary vote? It depends on the state you're in. Okay. So I'm registered still in Wisconsin because that's my last uh, place of residence. And mine is in April. But they last, I mean, I think they last until they last until the summer for sure. I don't remember the last uh, vote itself. But it it's, kicks off, I'm pretty sure, in February <coughs> in Iowa. The Iowa caucuses will be the first primaries, which is why they're getting so much attention right now. It's going to be a really good indicator of how the candidates are doing overall. So the candidates at the moment, most of them, are camped out in Iowa, have been there for months trying to get the Iowans to vote for them. So that'll start the primary race. And then, yeah, it just depends on your state. And the rules also change a little bit depending on your state. So some of them <clears throat> will be like a straightforward primary where you cast your vote and then whoever – it's like a popular election type thing where whatever is the majority of votes, that candidate will get – like all of the delegates from that state and then other states do it slightly differently. And I'm, to be honest, I'm not familiar with all of the different processes, but it's, it can be slightly different per state and the timing of the election varies per state. So that means these 13 or so of candidates are going to be still in the running until summertime. Yep, theoretically. But I mean, you know, I don't know. I mean, I forget when Trump officially got the nomination. So there's going to be at some point um, like a delegation where the DNC or the GOP will actually decide like, okay, this is our man or this is our woman. So, but they're supposed to respect the number of delegates that that person has won based on how they've been doing in the primaries, which they do. But then there's some people who say that the, the DNC, that's the Democratic National Committee, they sort of manipulated things in a way such that Bernie didn't get the nomination it's not as, you know, it's not as egregious as they make it sound. It's not as though he clearly won more delegates and they just ignored that. But it was like, you know, things like they poured more resources towards Hillary and whatever. But essentially, there'll be this sort of formality type convention where they officially say like, OK, so this is going to be the candidate we put forward. But they have to respect the number of delegates that they've accrued through the primary elections, basically. I mean, that's just... A year, or it's almost a year's worth of campaigning. Oh, yeah, I think more than a year. I think people started last spring, for sure. So it's actually, like, what, over a year and a half of campaigning. I think we should probably wrap up there. Yeah. Is there anything else you'd like to add about U.S.? Oh, like I could talk about it forever. <laughs> so I think probably wrapping up there is But I definitely best. think we'll have to do this later on in this electoral campaign. Yeah, and also as the impeachment, you know, Yes. heats up because there's going to be a vote for impeachment articles probably by the end of this year is what they're predicting, which means maybe six weeks from now we'll have Donald Trump impeached, which, fun fact, doesn't mean he's removed from office, just means he's been yeah. charged with a crime. Oh, you taught me that in the past. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, thank you, Taryn. And no, thank you. Thank you for listening to A Broad View. Stay tuned for next time, if there is a next time. <laughs> thank you. Bye. Bye-bye.